and we're ready to go. Okay, so uh, we begin tonight uh, the second of the uh, of the thirteen principles. So uh, before we embark on read on reading it together, so we should go ahead and um, or discussing it together, we should uh, read it together. So it goes as follows: the top is the uh, the wording of the Rambam, and we'll uh, you could follow along in the uh, the English. Sometimes English gets confusing for me. So it says as follows: Hayesod Hasheni. The second principle is Yehudo Hashemis Barach. So this is the unity of God. Kolomer, in other words, Shenamin Shezeshu Sibasako, that there's an obligation for every Jew to believe that the source of everything which exists, that's the Sibasako, the cause of everything in existence, Echad. So that being what we call Hashem, so that being is one. Ve'enok Echad Hazug. When we talk about the unity of, of God, it's not as if he is a pair, that there's two of them. Or is it like a species, which also could be described, you know, that there would be a name for a species. Nor is, it, is Hashem's existence like a person who is, who is a, a, a composition or a com, a comprised of all sorts of different parts. Because a human being, even though we may describe a human in terms of a singular existence, every person is going to have a name, but that person, as we know, can be broken down into different body parts and whatnot. Nor is even going to be one, which is something which, uh, uh, which is a, a unit of something. Which we know, scientifically, you could go ahead and you could break down anything which exists, anything which has physical existence, into smaller and smaller parts, and there is uh, innumerable parts which anything can be broken down into. But when we talk about HaKadosh Baruch Hu in His unity, So He is like the unity of unities. And there's nothing else which exists, which has unity, which resembles the unity of God. And we're going to talk about this in the course of our discussion tonight, the unique uh, nature of this uh, unity of Hashem. And this second principle, and this is essentially captured in what we say at least twice a day, three times a day. That hero Israel, Hashem, our God, Hashem is one, and that Echad, that's the em- emphasis on the unity of uh, of Hashem. So now, what exactly does uh, does uh, does this mean? So as the Rambam says that the uh, uh, as we've struggled uh, as we struggled in the first principle, it's difficult to be able to come up with an example of what we mean, something which we could use as a model or an, or as an example of what God's unity is, is, is all about. And this idea that it's something which is really beyond our comprehension, should, if you remember, that there are three different, in a sense, three different formulations of the 13 principles which we generally uh, uh, have. One is the Rambam's original formulation in his commentary to the, uh, to the Mishnayas at the beginning of that last parak of Sanhedrin, where he originally formulated the 13 principles. Then we have the Yigdal form of it. So the Yigdal is a very short poetic version which captures the essence of the 13 uh, principles. 
And then we have the animamin version of that, which is another way of being able to, uh, to capture or to summarize the 13 principles. The animamin version isn't in rhyme, and uh, we don't have a, really a tune for that. So it's not as, uh, we're not as familiar with it. But Yigdal, we are familiar with. So in Yigdal, in the second principle, we say, we begin with the phrase, Echad ven yachid ki yichudo. The Gashbarchu is one, that's the Echad. And there's no uh, unity which exists in all of the universe which resembles HaKadosh Baruch Hu's, uh, unity. And as we said, everything else is going to be able to be broken down into smaller and smaller units. A person is made up of cells, cells are made up of atoms, atoms are made up of, I don't know what it is, but everything is going to be divisible into smaller and smaller parts. And that's the nature of things which are physical. The nature of things which are physical is the capacity to break it down into microscopic and submicroscopic and sub-submicroscopic different, uh, different parts. But on, uh, very, at least initially, on very simplistic terms, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is a completely spiritual being and spiritual things cannot be broken down into smaller parts. So that's the difference. Anything which is physical is going to be, uh, is comprised of smaller and smaller, uh, smaller parts. So therefore a person does not have a unity to them. Anything which is physical does not have, uh, have unity. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as a spiritual being, as a spiritual entity, so that is something which is not divisible into smaller parts. And therefore that would uh, seemingly give us some uh, understanding of why it is that we describe God in terms of having this unity, which uh, and there's nothing else which resembles that unity of, of, of Hashem. But the truth is, is that if we begin to think about this a little bit, so we realize that this doesn't really do justice to the description of Hashem's unity. Because if the, if the basis of the unity of Hashem is the fact that he's spiritual and not rather than physical, so then how are we going to go ahead and explain angels? Angels also are entities and beings which don't have physical characteristics. Now, I say that in the midst of doing these parshios and chumash, where we're discussing all sorts of angels and how they do take on physical characteristics. But let's imagine that we are in Sefer Vayikra or something like that, where we talk about angels as being just uh, spiritual entities without taking on the, on physical form. Or when the angels, which do take on physical form, when they uh, uh, go back to their spiritual entity. So as spiritual beings, they also don't have physical existence, which should be able to be broken down into smaller and smaller parts. So to simply say that the difference between God's unity and why nothing else in the universe has that characteristic of unity, that yichud, is to explain that uh, away by saying we're physical beings and Hashem is not a physical being, and that accounts for that discrepancy, that accounts for that difference. So that's not going to answer for us uh, how we're going to explain angels. Because when we say, that there's no unity like Hashem's, that also means that Hashem's existence is fundamentally different than that of angels. So how exactly are we going to explain the unity of Hashem, which not only differentiates Hashem from mankind, Hashem from the physical things of the universe, how are we going to be able to describe Hashem's unity in a way which differentiates Hashem, even from the spiritual beings, such as the, uh, such as the, uh, the angels? Or, for example, our neshama. The neshama of a person also is not a physical thing which can be divided. 
Now that also is not really is not completely true um, in a certain sense because uh, those who are f- uh, a little bit familiar with some uh, basic Kabbalistic uh, thought so uh, will be aware of the fact that a person is re- the the spiritual part of a person. I hesitate to use the word nesham because that is a has a specific connotation, but there's different parts of the soul also that uh, that exist inside of us. And some of there are some of those parts are on higher levels. Some of them are on lower levels. If you've ever been around uh, when uh, uh, at a shiva house when I was there talking to uh, to the Avelim, so it's not uncommon that I, I describe to them a little bit about the journey of the soul following death. That there's a certain part of this soul which, once the soul separates from the body, there's a certain part which goes straight up to Shemayim, and that's a part which is going to have the judgment. Uh, for the person's lifetime, their activities during their lifetime. But there's another part of the soul which stays together with the body, finds it difficult to, to, uh, to, to move away from the body altogether and sort of hovers there together with the body until the body is buried. That's a part of the soul. Again, you may or may not be familiar with the, the idea, but that's a part of the soul that we say is present during the time of the Hespadim. During the time of the eulogies, it's considered to be a very sacred time, but it's also, uh, we're warned to be very cautious not to over-exaggerate the various qualities and the traits of the nifter, of the deceased, because there is that part of the soul which is present, and that soul is going to be made awfully uncomfortable in the event that you're describing it in terms of which aren't, uh, which aren't accurate. Little bit of exaggeration we allow, but if you go ahead and you assign them traits which they don't possess altogether, so that's something which is uh, which is offensive to uh, to the soul itself, but all of us have this spiritual soul which also does have physical um, characteristics to it. So how are we going to go ahead and differentiate between God as a spiritual being who has this yichud, who has this unity uh, to Him, and the soul which all of us possess inside of us? That's what animates us. That's what gives us life. And that go, we uh, go ahead and we say that that is something which doesn't have this yichu, doesn't have the, the, the unity of Hashem. So uh, the answer, which uh, I think makes uh, uh, most sense in, in, in my head, and I think the one which the, uh, the various commentators point to as the way to differentiate between Hashem as a spiritual being and the other spiritual entities, whether it's our neshama, whether it's our soul, or whether it's going to be the malachim, is the fact that, and this is something we'll talk about more in the uh, in the in the uh, in the next principle. But that is is that although let's just use angels as an example, although angels don't have a physical entity to them, and they can't be divide, they cannot be divided in a physical sense. They exist in time. So once we go ahead and we say that they exist in time, that already is a limitation which is assigned to them. And therefore, that's something which is going to be completely different than, uh, than Hashem's existence. When we talk about Hashem being the, uh, the Sibas Hakol, the, uh, the cause of everything which is brought into existence. So the very uh, first moment of creation, whatever we're going to, however we're going to go ahead and describe that, but going back to what we talked about in the introduction, uh, Hashem's tzimtzum, Hashem's contraction in order to allow physical things to exist. So as soon as that process begins, so that's really when time begins. Time is a function of 
changes to uh, physical uh, physical things. So as soon as there's that initial allowance of, of, of physicality, the withdrawal of Hashem, physical things could then begin on a very microscopic scale, as it were, uh, begin to come in ex- into existence. That's when time begins. And angels don't predate time. The only thing which predates time, the only thing which exists outside of time entirely is Hashem himself. And everything else is something which is going to be uh, is going to be uh, is going to be confined in time. So although our soul cannot be broken down into smaller physical parts, and although angels cannot be broken down into smaller physical parts, they don't have the same yichud. They don't have the same characteristic in terms of the unity of Hashem, the unity of Hashem's existence, because they are all confined to time. They're in the timeline or some sort of continuum of time. Whereas uh, uh, Hashem himself, Hashem is outside of time. This is in the animamin form of this, uh, this principle. So we actually have this expressed more clearly than in the Yigdal form, because in the animamin form, we say, Hulavado, that Hashem himself, Elokeinu is our God, Haya Hove He was, is, and always will be. So that, uh, that notion that Akash Baruch Hu is a Haya Hove he was, is, and always will be, that is the terminology that we use to say that Akash Baruch Hu is outside of time. It's not even like eternal, which means in all of time, from the beginning of time to the end of time, but this is something Hashem's existence is outside of time altogether. There is no beginning, there is no end. It doesn't even, the, the, uh, the, the limitations of time are not something which are applicable to, uh, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So this, uh, so this, one of this unique aspects of Hashem's unity is the fact that he is not confined neither in time nor in space. And that's something which is only, that's unique to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu could be described uh, from, uh, in those terms as being not only not physical, but also not uh, confined in time. And that is uh, one element of the unity of the Yichud Hashem, which this, uh, which this principle goes at and, uh, and, and captures. Now, uh, if we accept this is true, which hopefully we uh, we do if there's no challenges. So I'm going to assume that all of this is is true. So now this gives rise to a difficulty that uh, that we're going to have to uh, grapple with as we go ahead and we think about and we contemplate God's uh, uh, existence and specifically in the context of His unity here, because um, the difficulty that this raises is the attributes which we assign to God. When we say Hashem Hashem Rachum Vachanum Erech Hapayim Rav Chesed VeMes, when we go ahead and we describe the Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the thirteen uh, uh, attributes of mercy, let's say, or saying God is a good God and God is a compassionate God, and all of these things which we say, so uh, those attributes uh, seem to violate the principle of unity, the principle of Hashem being uh, uh, unity and not being comprised of, of parts. And the uh, to uh, to uh, fully understand the uh, the question, so let me give uh, let me give an example. Let's say I were to uh, to to tell everybody Mel is a good guy. Right? Now I'm not going to ask whether anybody agrees or disagrees, but let's just say for argument's sake, I go ahead and I make the statement. I think Mel disagrees, but let's go ahead and uh, for argument's sake, let's assume that I say Mel is a good guy. 
So what is that phrase? Mel is a good guy. So what does that imply? So that implies number one is that Mel is a guy. Again, 21st century, what exactly that means, we're not going to go into, into the, those definitions. But we're saying Mel is a human being. And not only is a Mel a human being, but he is a human being known by the name Mel, which means that he is Mel, but there are other human beings that are not Mel. There are other guys that are not Mel, other guys on the, uh, on the Zoom uh, share here who are not Mel. And not only that, but Mel is good, which implies that one could be a guy and one could be bad. One could be a guy, a person who's not good. So if I go ahead and I say that Mel is a good guy, that description, that adjective, that he is good, is something which is overlapped onto a more fundamental element of his, of his existence, the fact that he's a human being. So he's a human being who is good. So that attribute isn't part of the essential definition of being human. It's an adjective which, is, which overlaps on top of that. Some people earn that adjective of being good, and some people through their behavior don't earn the adjective of being good. But that attribute which, which I'm assigning to Mel is not something which is an essential part of his existence. So if that's true, if we say God is good, God is compassionate, God is loving, so all of those descriptions, they could give uh, inference that it may be possible for God to not be loving or for God to not be compassionate or for God not to be good, but he happens to be possess those attributes. So if we look at attributes as being uh, adjectives which go on top of the essential definition of what we're describing, that would seem to tell us that God's exist, God, the description of God, the attribute of God as good, isn't essential to his definition. And if that's true, so now we've lost out on the Yichud Hashem. We've lost out on the definition of the, <coughs> of the unity of Hashem. It no longer holds true once we could go ahead and we could describe him with adjectives which describe his, uh, his, his existence. Um, right. So how do we go ahead and, uh, so how do we reconcile, uh, how do we reconcile this? So the truth is that this difficulty uh, arises similar to what we talked about, uh, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but we talked about the, uh, the great philosophical question of whether Hashem could go ahead and create a rock that he cannot exist, that, that he cannot lift. So that question uh, at first glance, seems to be a, a conundrum, uh, an unanswerable conundrum, because either way you go, you're going to say that there's something God cannot do, either there's something he cannot lift, or there's something which he cannot create, either way that implies some sort of a, a limitation. So this question also, that the attributes of God, of being good, of being compassionate, of being merciful, so those uh, uh, disturb us, only because we are really trying to uh, understand God from a human perspective, which is what we're always forced uh, to do. But the truth is, is that those descriptions which we have for Hashem uh, in, human, uh, in human terms, so they are really, uh, uh, they shortchange an accurate description of who Hashem is. There are weak attempts in order to be able to anthropomorphize or give God human characteristics, which in reality, those are not, the, are, are not accurate. Let me give you an example 
uh, one which uh, I think will be, uh, or hopefully will be easier for everybody to understand. There are two basic names that we have for Hashem. They are the Yudke Vavke, when we say uh, Hashem, that's uh, the, the name, Baruch Atah Hashem, that's one name, the Yudke Vavke. And then we have the name of Hashem, Elokim, or let's say Elokeinu. So when we say, like in the, the, the Pasuk of Shema, which we quoted, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu. So Hashem is one name we have for God. Elokeinu is the second name that we have for God. Why does God get two different names? So we know that the two names uh, uh, connote different aspects of God's existence. The name yud Vavke. So that's the name that we use to describe God when we want to talk about the, the element of his existence, which is chesed, which is kindness. The expansiveness is something where we will go ahead and you'll find the name of Hashem in that, uh, in that, particular, uh, in that particular context. That happens to be the uh, element of God's existence, which Avram Avinu uh, uncovered. He saw God as a God of chesed. And that's why it's by no mistake that of all of the Avos, so Avram Avinu is the one who uh, is the epitome. He is the one who personifies chesed more so than any of the other Avos. Because that was his perception of God as God. That goes back to God being the creator. So God being the creator, so that was an act of the ultimate chesed. So chesed, the name Yudke Vavke, always tells us, talks about God's expansiveness and, the, and, and God's kindness. The name Elohim or Elokeinu, which is another form of that, that's almost the exact opposite. Because Elohim, so that is the name that we use when we go ahead and we describe God in terms of din, when we de- describe God in terms of judgment. So somebody is going to be judgy, right? When we feel that somebody's judging us, so that means that they're not being kind towards us. Usually that's a judgment. They're limiting things. It's a contraction. It's a term of contraction. And it's something which is limiting um, uh, what is, is going on. Yitzchak Avinu, as we know, so Yitzchak Avinu is the, is the uh, one of the Avos. He's the one of the, uh, the forefathers who is going to epitomize and personify that aspect of God's existence that of Elohim or that of Elokeinu, uh, Yitzchak is not known for creativity. Creativity is associated with chesed or expansiveness. Gvura, strength in judgment, implies that you're now going to capture something or you're going to confine something in a particular way. As we'll talk about in a little bit, or maybe next week, uh, we talk about the ability to summarize of a lot of information. So that's an act of Elohim, that's an act of din. You're taking a lot of stuff and you're now going to confine it or limit it to these particular words or this particular uh, particular summary. So if you remember, if you, uh, if you know your Chumash or you pay, if you paid attention, so Yitzchak Avinu, when he goes ahead and redigs the wells, there were wells which had been dug by his father, Avram Avinu. Then there were people who went ahead and filled in those wells, filled in those, uh, those, uh, those burrows. So when Yitzchak went ahead and he redug them, he assigned them the same name that were given to them by his father, indicating again that uh, Yitzhak in his personality, in his approach to, uh, to Avodah Hashem, which is modeled after Hashem as Elokeinu or as Elokim, 
it's not creative. It is following what was already uh, the path, which is already created by Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu is the creative one. And then Yitzchak goes out and just follows suit and continues in that, in that path. So that's the name of Hashem of Elohim. Now, the, one of the ways that, that you would remember this, connecting some of the stuff which we talked about, is the very act of creation, although we described it in certain regards as, as a chesed, in order to be able to afford people the opportunity to connect with Hashem. But the process of creation is something that required uh, uh, tzimtzum, required contraction on Hashem's part. Hashem had, again, we don't know exactly what it means, but Hashem had to withdraw his existence in order for physical things to come, in order to allow physical things to be able to come into existence. So he had to withdraw himself in order for the physical to, uh, to, uh, to enter into this world. And that's why the Pasuk says, the very beginning of Chomesh begins, Breshis bara Elohim. So it's the name of Elohim, which was necessary in order to go through this creative process of allowing the universe to come into existence. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu's chesed was dominant at that point, so then his existence or his entity would expand, whatever expansion means from, from God's perspective, but it would be expansive, and then the physical wouldn't be able to come into existence. So creation itself required that aspect of God's existence known as Elohim or as Elokeinu rather than as Hashem, which is, which is Chesed. Okay, now, knowing that we have these two different names of God, one is on one end of the spe- spectrum, that of Chesed, that of kindness, expansiveness, and the other on the other end of the spectrum, which is Din and Gvura and contraction. So how could both of these opposite ends of the the spectrum, how could these two things coexist in a God, which is Yichud Hashem, which is unity? Unity means that there's one entity, there's one being which is there, and now we're describing God in these two very different personality traits, very different characteristics. Avram and Yitzchak were very different from one another. They were father and son, but their approach to Avodah Hashem, their understanding and their focus and their emphasis were very different from one another. It was fundamentally uh, fundamentally different. Like you have brisk on one end and chasidus on another end. So they're both related to Avodah Hashem, but they're, they're very different approaches to one another. And it's very rare, if everybody, that you have somebody who's going to be able to combine the elements of the, the defining elements and characteristics of brisk with the defining elements and characteristics of Hasidus, when usually they're exclusive of one another. They cannot coexist with one another generally in a comfortable way. So if that's true by these two different approaches of Avodah Hashem, so what are we going to say about Hashem, who's both Hashem and Elkim at the same time? So we know by definition that has to be the case, but yet we find that uh, seemingly they seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum, and at the very least, there are two different elements of Hashem's quote-unquote personality. So if HaGosh Baruch Hu has two different elements of his personality, how could we honestly say that there is a principle of Yichud Hashem of taking these two, op- these two opposites and combining them into one entity, which is not different parts, uh, fused together, but they're really all one thing. So that, uh, 
we'll borrow from Hasidus. We won't go with a brisk approach over here. We'll go with a Hasidish approach. The way they go ahead and they, uh, they explain this, they reconcile this is, in a sense, human thought. So we all know that, uh, that uh, left to its own devices, so the mind will essentially run an, endish, an endless stream of thought. So whenever your spouse says to you, what are you thinking about? And you say, oh, nothing. So you know that you're being completely dishonest because you can't actually think about nothing or it's a very high meditative uh, state to actually think about something. It's always, you're thinking about something. You just don't want to share what you're thinking about. So you say, I'm thinking about nothing. Everybody understands that uh, there's something going on. That's just a polite way of saying, keep your nose out of my business or something along, uh, along those lines. But the mind is capable of, and is um, experiences this endless stream of thought. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, so the mind has a great capacity to go ahead and limit and define concepts. So as we said, that you could go ahead, we could take a lot of information and we could summarize it in a very succinct, in a very um, uh, um, um, uh, short manner, rather than uh, uh, a, a long shear. Rev. Victor Miller, uh, he said on, uh, on uh, I, I think I heard him say it on a number of, uh, a number of different tapes, but he said that uh, when you have in Avos, very often Emisha is introduced with the words, Huhaya Omer, that this Tana used to say, and then they would say, this isn't one of the things we just said over there, but let's just say, he used to say that, um, what was this week's uh, Mishnah? Um, right? So we're able to take all three of that, even if you're not very good uh, in, uh, in grammar and you want to make three sentences out of it, but those are three very short sentences, very simple. Make for yourself a rabbi, buy for yourself a friend, and uh, judge everybody favorably. So Vigdor Miller said that Chazal are demonstrating there an amazing capacity to go ahead and take these three concepts and to state them so succinctly. When that Tana, the author of that, that statement, originally gave the shear where he discussed these things, each one of those elements was discussed for three, four hours on end. So first he discussed what it means to say, What does mean? And he gave a whole Shabbat Shuvah about And then come Pesach time, and he gave a whole Shabbat Shuvah drasha about the importance of, of getting for yourself a friend. And then he gave another shvuish here, which went on for hours and hours all night long about having done as about judging everybody favorably. Now, after giving six, 10, 12 hours of shurim on this topic, so now it came time to compose the Mishnah. So to go ahead and write six hours or 10 hours or 12 hours worth of material down, nobody's going to read Mishnahis if they're that long. Way too long. That's what the, the Gemara is for. That's not what the Mishnahis are for. So what the Tana did was he distilled the essence of that three-hour shear into one phrase, everything else is commentary to that. But if you want to know, what did the rabbi talk about? The rabbi talked about this topic, something I tell my, 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 uh, my students very, very often. Now I'm, uh, I'm pulling back the curtain. So all of you should think about this. Mirza Hashem, next time I actually speak in Shul, whenever that, uh, that will be as part of a drasha, and when everybody will be able to attend and, uh, and be there. So make sure to, to do a doozy uh, when that happens. Bikaru biyamenu, bimhera biyamenu. But, what, uh, but uh, what I tell them is, is that whenever you're listening to somebody speak, there's one question 
which you have to have running through your mind throughout the speech. Whether it's the 10 minute speech, the 12 minute speech, the 15 minute speech, there it's actually doable. Once it gets longer, it becomes more difficult, but you wanna have one question running through your mind the whole time that you're listening. And that question is, what's the point? You always need to know what the point of the drush is about, because as soon as you get lost, as soon as you can no longer follow what the point is, in all likelihood, the speaker has no idea what he's saying, because he himself has gotten lost in his in his thoughts and is it doesn't know and how this story connects with what he was saying before and how it's going to lead you to where he wants to eventually get you to. Every step along the way, you should be able to trace it and know what is the what is the the point. So this is this ability of the mind to be able to take 15 minute drasha and summarize it in a phrase and say, so that's a tremendous capacity to constrict thought that the mind has. So the mind is capable of, of these two opposite, uh, uh, these two opposite um, uh, uh, characteristics, two opposite traits. Um, it's not potential. Two opposite capabilities. On the one hand, it could run an, endless, an endless stream of thought. And then on the other end, it could go ahead and it could capture and could summarize and limit everything which was said into a phrase or into a, into a, into a, into a sentence. So if we don't look at that as if these two, these two capacities, these two abilities, that's what I'm looking for, these two abilities of the mind as not being able to coexist within the same mind. All of us have had the experience where we could do both things. We could have, we could daydream throughout the drasha and just go from one thing to another, to another, to another. That's generally what our shmonestre is like, that we just move from one thought to the next thought to the next thought, that endless stream of, of thought. And then if we want to go ahead and we want to uh, share with somebody what the rabbi spoke about, so we're not going to go ahead and repeat the entire drasha. What we'll go ahead and do is we'll summarize it in a sentence or two or a paragraph or something like that. So two different abilities, but they're both able to coexist in the, in, in, in the mind. And that's what we're going to say when we go ahead and we talk about God having all these different attributes. All these different attributes, even when they may seem contradictory, they're not something which exists outside of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's, uh, essential nature. It's not as if you could have a God who is not good, and therefore we say he's a good God, that's something which is unique about God, that he's good, because there's a potential to not be good. All of that, all of those uh, uh, the descriptions which we have, as we mentioned uh, from the outset, they're all merely anthropomorphic. They're our ability to be able to associate with the traits of God in terminology and from perspectives of which we can understand human perspectives. But when we say that God is good, we don't mean to say that he possesses these things and there's the potential for him not to possess those things. These things are inextricably uh, uh, part of his, uh, his essential nature. And it's not an adjective which is uh, uh, assigned to God or which overlaps on top of God. These are all things which are unique. And these are things which are inseparable from his, uh, from his existence. Um, the Rambam, uh, or to put in a slightly different way, in the Mora Nevuchim, where also he talks about attributes of God and he gives this, and he gives his description of God. So he says a very interesting, he, he shares a very interesting uh, thought. And that is that he says that the only real attributes 
which we could assign or we could attribute to, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu are negative ones. Now, what do we mean when we say that we can attribute to God negative traits? So it's not negative in terms of that God is bad or that God is evil, chas shalom, that we would never go ahead and say, we wouldn't say, the Rambam wouldn't say. But what he means by negative traits is the most we're able to do is describe what God is not. The only thing we can accurately do when we're describing God is to say what he is not. We cannot say honestly and, and fully what he is. So for example, if we say that God is omniscient or God is omnipotent, God is all-knowing, that he's very wise, or God is all-powerful because he could create all sorts of uh, different things. So we don't mean to say that when we describe God as wise, when we describe God as powerful, we're not going to think of him as having an IQ which goes through the roof. Or we don't mean to say that he's strong and they have the strong, strongest man of, uh, in the world or the universe, uh, Mr. Universe contest. So we don't expect God to be competing with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, whatever other people are, are there to become, uh, to be uh, Mr. Universe more powerful than anybody else. When we talk about humans and we say that they're strong or we say that they're wise, what we're, what we're trying to describe is that this is a person who's stronger, it's relative, stronger than almost anybody else, or this is a person who is wiser than anybody else. But it doesn't mean to go ahead and capture this person as having the essence of wisdom contained inside of them. That's not a trait which really we could go ahead and we could, uh, we could assign to, uh, to God. Uh, so we can't describe God's wisdom in any way which is going to be uh, authentic, in any way which is going to capture the essence of what it means if we were to describe God as being wise. The most that we mean when we say that God is wise is he's not ignorant. That we could say honestly and that we could say truthfully. God is not ignorant. Now to go ahead and describe what exactly God's wisdom is, that we, we have no way of being able to, uh, to describe. If you remember the Gemara, I think it's in Brachos, talks about that when the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the beginning of the time of the origin of Shmon Esrei. So when uh, Shmon Esrei was originally composed by the Anshei Knesset Sagadola, I think I wrote about it in the Drasha not, uh, not too long ago. So when they went ahead and they uh, composed Shmon Esrei, so they, they, at the beginning of the first Bracha we say, Hakel Hagodo Hagibor Vahanora. This attributes uh, adjectives which are used to describe God. So there was one chazan back in our times when a chazan uh, uh, wants to go ahead and do something impressive, so he sings a lot. So back in the time of chazal, if you wanted to be an impressive shliach tzibur, so he added additional descriptions of God. So he took out his thesaurus, his God thesaurus, and began describing God as compassionate and merciful and whatever uh, you know descriptions he could come up with. He's very smart. He's very capable. He's the best kickball player that exists. Whatever they, uh, you know, whatever they go ahead and they they did to describe God. And when he finished, so the Tana who is present or the Amoru who is, pre- who is present said, "Have you finished? Have you finished describing all the things which we could go ahead and we could describe about about God?" And obviously the answer was no. And he said that the, the, the instruction to the Shliach Tzibur was that had the Anshei Knesset, had the Navi not used the phrase, Hakel Hagado Hagibor Vahanora, and had the Anshei Knesset Hagadola with all of their great wisdom in Nevoah and their knowledge of God, 
had they not incorporated even those descriptions of God into Shmon Esrei, we wouldn't be allowed to say it. Because normally when you describe somebody as possessing this trait, so the implication is they have this trait, but not another trait. Or like Hazal say, if you say, if you were to say about a wealthy king, he has so much silver, silver coming out of his nose. So if you're describing somebody as having so much silver that the silver is coming out of their nose, but what about the fact that they also have gold? If all you're doing is praising their silver and they've got storehouse and storehouse and storehouse of gold, so describing their silver is really is a veiled insult. When you, uh, people know in the, in the arena of Shaduchim, you say, could you tell me about this person? Very pleasant person, very nice personality. So what does nice personality mean? Nice personality looks, eh, maybe yes, maybe no, but the personality is great. So we use descriptions of people as a way of saying this one, but not that one. So when it comes to God, we say God is wise and God is powerful and God is mighty. So we don't mean to say that he's mighty in a way that we could describe his might. All we could really say is he's not weak. That's as far as we're going to be able to go in terms of our description of, a, of, a, of, a, of Hashem. So therefore, uh, so that's why when we go ahead and we see traits which describe God as being omniscient and God as being omnipotent and hakel, hagado, hagibor, v'anor, all of those things, we have to realize that we're not truly capturing what exactly it means when we say that God is any one of those things. What we really, the Ramam says, what we really need to think about is that if he has that trait, that means he is not the negative element of it. That's what the Rambam means by a negative description of God. We know for sure he's not ignorant. We know for sure he's not weak. But to go ahead and say, to think that when we say God is smart, that means he's as smart as Einstein, or he's as smart as Newton, or he's as smart as whoever, Da Vinci, or whatever, you know, more creative than, uh, than one of those people. So there's no comparison between the creativity of Beethoven or Mozart or somebody uh, like that. And uh, when we talk about the HaKadosh Baruch Hu's uh, creativity, because all none of those traits are descriptive of God in terms of his essence. They just are instructive as far as what God is not. Um, now, um, actually, you know what? I think we'll, uh, we'll hold it over here for, uh, for tonight. Uh, this one, because uh, we'll have another question answer, which... Uh, we'll go beyond uh, the the minute or so, which uh, which we have, uh, which we have. So, if uh, anybody has any uh, questions, want uh, some clarification, uh, feel free to uh, to ask. Otherwise, uh, we will uh, uh, say goodbye for tonight. Remind you that on Thursday we have a class, also at least for now, uh, scheduled at eight thirty. Topic is going to be an exciting one. Don't know what it will be uh, as of yet, but it will certainly be an exciting one, which uh, which you won't want, which you won't want to miss. And and we're good. Thank you, Rabbi. All the best. Take care, everybody. Stay healthy and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Salah be well.